A brief comment before this episode of Inspired by Yarra gets underway. And that is to note that this conversation that you're about to listen to was recorded well before COVID-19 was impacting life as we know it. We believe that this content is still relevant and helpful and we do want to acknowledge the current challenge that we're all facing. And thus, we invite you to share this or any other episode of Inspired by Yarra from our extensive library with the people who you think that it could help. Take care out there. Hey, hello, and welcome to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is the podcast that's created to enhance, connect, and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you're listening from today, I want to thank you for tuning in. My name is Paul Joy, and it is my privilege each episode to sit down with another Yog, a Yarra old grammarian. And we track some of their memories of their time at school and how that has impacted and maybe influenced where they are in their journey of life today. Now, we have an ever-expanding library of Inspired by Yarra episodes, and you can find them on the yvg.vic.edu.au website under the community section right down the bottom there's a link to the podcast and you can see 45 plus episodes there of other inspirational guests that we've had who all have walked these corridors who've worn this uniform who have been part of the student class here at Yarra Valley Grammar and It is my privilege today to sit down with another Yog. We're going back to the class of 2000 and I'm going to be sitting down shortly with squadron leader Chris Camille, member of the Royal Australian Air Force from the class of Yarra Valley Grammar in the year 2000. We're going to chat about life as in the armed forces and some of the... uh, I guess I'm going to ask him about the challenges of getting up there in the plane and the G-forces and the impact of your body and what does it take to be able to cope with all of that. And But initially, I'm going to ask him, where is it that he's calling from? I hope you enjoy this episode of Inspired by Yarra. Chris, where are you? I'm sitting on Rathbase Williamtown, which is um, close enough to Newcastle. In Australia, um, at work, but um, currently have the door closed. So at work, so when you are not flying planes, what does work look like? So I'm a fighter pilot in the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, As a fighter pilot, your main job is to train every day, flying fighters, getting very good at um, trying to shoot down other people in aeroplanes and trying to um, hurt people and damage things on the ground. Um, That that's a, a quick explanation, but the detail is to know everything about uh, your aircraft, its systems, its weapons, um, develop the tactics to counter the, uh, the threats that are out there, understand the, uh, the bad guy's equipment and the way they use it to try and exploit your own strengths um, and their weaknesses. Uh, so every day you're training a bit like a, a sports person or sports team might to um, work on that plan so that if ever you're called up and need to do something, then you're, um, you're ready to go. Wow. I mean, that's that's quite fascinating and not as easy as it might sound. Like you, you just let it roll off the tongue as though, you know, you, 
are you in the plane every day when you say training? Are you up in the air or is it a lot of book work? Uh, it is both. <laughs> so up in the air pretty much every day. Um, the flights are fairly short because fighters don't carry a lot of fuel unless we do air to air refueling from a tanker. So you typically, uh, in a normal, normal day in Australia, you fly, fly for maybe an hour actual flight. Uh, the rest of the time is book work, briefing, debriefing, uh, and of course all the admin and personnel stuff that goes along with probably almost any job nowadays. But the majority of your job is um, revolves around flying, even if that means that for every hour you're in the plane, you're probably doing you know eight or nine hours of uh, groundwork related to that flight. And that's a fascinating insight for us to to recognise the preparation and the ongoing work that goes into actually getting you up in the air, for, as you say, for an hour. There's also those hours and hours on the ground of, of getting ready to do what you've got to do when you're up in the air. What is the f- uh, plane that y- is your plane at the moment? What, what Can you describe it? What does it do? What's it really good at? Sure. Let me. I'll, I'll, the one I'm actually flying right now is called the Hawk 127. That's a jet trainer. Uh, some countries use it as their fighter, but for us, it's not a very good fighter. It's a simple jet that we use for teaching the younger fighter pilots the basics of uh, fighter tactics. Uh, I sit in the back seat and I instruct the baby fighter pilots. But uh, let me answer the main the main plane that I've flown and the one that I'm most proud of. Um, that's called the FA-18 Hornet. Um, it's one of our now frontline fighter aircraft. Uh, it's difficult to say what it's most good at. It's designed as what they call a multi-role fighter. So it does air-to-air, shooting down other airplanes, and air-to-ground, which is uh, bombing and shooting things on the ground. It's designed to be able to fight its way in, so uh, shoot down other airplanes um, to then uh, destroy targets on the ground and then fight its way back out. So it's multi-role. Um, as you can imagine, uh, an airplane like that needs to have a lot of strengths and a lot of things that you think about. So it's not like it can be... Um, very specialised about any one particular thing. Uh, and that's part of our job is to understand enough about everything that we need to. So all the things that are required to get ourselves in, uh, do the job and, and get out. There must be moments, like I, I, I'm not great with heights at the best of times. Funny thing is I'm not either actually. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but I don't, you know, if you're in a high hotel room, I don't like standing near the window, but for some reason that's not, not an issue to me in an aeroplane. I've got a problem with that. You're <laughs> sitting behind the controls of this um, beast of a plane that can do all these twists and turns and get in and get out of trouble really, really quickly, and yet you're not great with heights. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know it sounds silly. I don't know why it's different. Uh, it is. My wife laughs at me a lot whenever I get uh, jittery near the edge of something, but I think that's a healthy respect for, uh, for heights. But for whatever reason, in an aeroplane, um, doesn't seem to worry me. What, what about the notion, though, and I imagine uh, whether you call it G-forces or the, you know, turbulence, that dropping sensation, does that, is that something that you experience when you're going at the speeds you're going at, at the heights that you're going at, or is that not an issue? Like me on a passenger plane, we drop a little bit and so does my belly, but you in this jet fighter... Do you experience turbulence? You definitely do get turbulence, but that's not really a very big thing compared to the G that you touched on. G-force comes uh, comes as a result of turning uh, very fast and uh, and tight. Um, you know, at the at the maximum G that we regularly pull in the jet, um, we're pulling about eight G, which means that everything on your body and everything you're experiencing weighs eight times the normal force of gravity. So that means that you know our your your head plus the 
helmet, which has some funky stuff on it, maybe weighs, I don't know, 10 kilograms normally. Uh, but that means when you're doing 8G, you've got an 80 kilogram weight on your neck. Uh, and you're trying to look around uh, behind you to see other airplanes and keep tabs of what's going on. So it's actually quite surprisingly physically demanding on your, on your back and neck. So I imagine, therefore, that physical fitness is actually part of your responsibility as well. Do you spend time regularly working out as such? <laughs> you can see me, Paul. I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> no, no, not uh, not normally. But uh, as it happens, we've um, we've realised in the Air Force that we're breaking a lot of people's backs and necks quite badly. So um, over the last couple of years, there's been a big investment in, uh, in that with very tailored programs. So right now, down the hall, we've got a... Um, the ex-head physio of the Brisbane Lions, who's our full-time uh, physio. We've got um, uh, a guy who runs a special set of weight machines designed for just your neck and head. So you strap your neck and head in and strengthen your, your neck and back. And then we've got another gym with a couple of instructors who you know run programs, again, aimed at strengthening core, neck and back. Um, because it's, it's unavoidable. Fighters will always be pulling a lot of G. Um, you're likely to have heavy stuff on your head and you need to look around. Uh, very quickly at aeroplanes behind you who are trying to um, trying to shoot you down. So that that's always going to be there and can't really be managed away. So the best we can do is is invest in that uh, that physical side of it. So maybe in a year you'll see me. I'll have a a, a big neck and <laughs> shoulders and back. So so just to be clear, you, you have a helmet and that that's non-negotiable. That's got some things happening in it and for you that you need. You're strapped in, and I'm going to invite you to explain that process in a moment, but but really you still need to be able to look around. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. You need to look literally almost directly behind you to be able to um, see who's behind you. And, you know, when we're doing dogfighting, you're manoeuvring with respect to other aeroplanes that are all over the sky, including uh, directly behind you, which is bad as a fighter pilot, but absolutely one of the things we, we're trained to do. Um, so you're, you're regularly turning with, you know, very, your head very quickly all over the shop with 80 kilograms-ish on your head, on your neck. Wow. So, so absolutely, as soon as we finish this call, you get back into the gym. <laughs> I, I think I need it. No, I'm a bit quite weedy. Yeah. So, so can you walk us through, um, and I, obviously there's hours and hours of preparation um, and you're doing the study and the homework and, and learning and relearning. But let's say the call comes in and, and you're called into action. How quickly do you go from hanging up on this call to being in the plane? And what are the steps that happen as you climb up into the cockpit? Right. So from um, the, the speed of response, if you like, that, that's a very variable thing. Um, for me right now, I'm in a training job, so I wouldn't ever be immediately back to a frontline fighter. Um, even for the boys and girls who are uh, flying frontline fighters right now and ready to go, they are on different levels of alert depending on you know which squadron they're at and our political circumstances. So um, the exact numbers vary is the short answer. Um, but certainly if uh, we, we would have good indication that something is potentially brewing and so those readiness notices would go down so that everyone gets as ready as possible to, um, to go. That said, as far as the training and mental readiness, you know, all, all those guys and girls are, are ready to go um, and their whole job every day is to make sure that they're in tip-top condition um, and understand and are ready for anything. So they're mentally ready to go on very short notice. Um, in reality, um, they, the notice that they're required to, to act on varies according to what they're doing at the time and, and what else is happening in the world. Was that, did that answer your question? Was there, <laughs> was there it, a second part? It does, it does. So, so I guess the notion, let's put you in, I, I appreciate you're in a training 
um, role at the moment, and I, I, we will talk about that. But I, I want to get back out to to battle. Yeah, and that's, we're the, that's out the there. interesting bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, but clearly, we need the training to be able to have more people ready for battle. Where you've got the call, you're heading to the plane. What are you carrying with you as you walk to the plane? You climb up a ladder, do you? You jump in and you say, righto, and you push start, you turn the key. What do you do? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. The answer is detailed. Um, let me use, uh, obviously, the type of conflict um, can, can vary as well. So let me use an example. When I went to um, the Middle East a couple of years ago, um, when we sent our fighters to, uh, to on operations against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, um, that in the scheme of the conflict that we're prepared for, that's pretty easy and pretty low level, to be honest. Um, there's not really much of a threat against us. Uh, ISIS didn't have any aeroplanes, so uh, weren't particularly worried. Um, after we do all our briefing and get all our uh, get out all our gear, you're carrying um, usually a couple of things that you strap to your legs with various notes and pictures and all of your frequencies and plans essentially um, on them. Um, you've got a little bag with all your navigation uh, stuff. You've got a what we call a brick, which is basically a fancy name for a heavy-duty floppy drive, floppy disk or a USB stick that uh, we've done all of our mission planning on. You plug it into the jet after you've started up, and um, it grabs all that information, sends it to the jet, uh, and has everything you're thinking about from you know radar specifics to uh, just navigation information, communication stuff, you name it. It um, gets sent into the jet. Um, got a some kind of weapon, so usually a pistol uh, and rounds. We've got a whole bunch of survival stuff like radios um, and a bunch of other stuff that's strapped to you. Um, then there's a life jacket, so if you end up in the uh, in the water, it will keep you uh, afloat with your head above the water, even if you're knocked out. Um, and then in the actual jet itself, it's got a bunch of other um, you know life raft and things that are part of the ejection seat. So you grab all your stuff, uh, you go out and you walk around the jet, make sure it's good to go. You, you do climb up a ladder, um, you jump in, you strap yourself in, which is a surprisingly complex process, more than just chucking the seatbelt on in the car. You know, you've got to um, plug in your G-suit, your oxygen, your, uh, your comms, you're connected to the, the seat and the five-point harness, you're plugged into that life raft and survival pack I spoke about, um, and then you, uh, you turn the key, which again is, you know, is complex. It's a good... Uh, it's a good 30 minutes from sort of deciding to start and having the jet um, ready and in a position to, to taxi and have checked all your weapons and systems. Wow. And and when you're, let's put you back in, where did you say you were the example that you spoke of most recently in combat? Yeah, that was based in the, um, based in the UAE but flying into Iraq and or Syria. And are you in a plane on your own or are there two of you? No, the, uh, the F-18A, which is the one I was flying, has a uh, single seat. Uh, everything we do, you have at least one wingman, um, just like Top Gun. Um, so we would normally fly as a, uh, as a pair, so two, two people, two mates, uh, each in your own jet, um, but you'd stick together for most things that you did, nearly everything. And what are you known as? Like, what's your what's your call sign? What's your uh, do you Top have Gun some... made you think of that, didn't it? <laughs> it did. <laughs> Very excited about the uh, the sequel coming out in a few months. By the way, <laughs> we don't uh, we we people do have nicknames. I get uh, Camel, and that's purely as a, a variation on my uh, surname, which is awkward to spell and and pronounce. Um, but we don't really do nicknames like the US or call signs like the US do. You know, um, when when we work with our American colleagues, which we we do a lot, we're we're tightly allied with them. Um, you know, they, they have lots of very serious 
call signs and you introduce yourself and you're like, hi, I'm Snake Blood and I'm Death Man. And I'm like, yeah, g'day, man. I'm Camel. How you going? <laughs> so it's a bit of a different culture. It's not as, um, it's not as kind of, doesn't have quite the same presence, does it, calling yourself Camel? No, no, not so much. But uh, I've, I've never liked people who take themselves too seriously. So I'm happy with our take on it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Chris, um, this didn't all uh, begin and you don't automatically just become a fighter pilot. You don't just put on the suit and, and, and then you are. You began dreaming about this, dare I say, maybe thinking about this and planning for this many, many years ago. Let me take you right back to school um, and your time at Yarra Valley Grammar. At any point during your schooling, did you think that's what I want to do? Yes. Uh, so I, I wanted to fly from a very young age, very, I'm guessing about seven or so I wanted to fly. Um, you know, in high school that turned into, I want to be a pilot. And then sort of towards the end of high school, I really liked the idea of the air force and wanting to be a fighter pilot specifically. So, um, I, I actually consider myself very lucky. You know, I think that's rare that people have a particular job that they definitely want to do from school. That gave me focus, uh, something to aim for, uh, and work, work towards and, and that certainty of knowing, knowing what I at least wanted to do, which um, it's tough, you know, for, for kids at school to start choosing subjects at whatever age that is now, quite a young age, that ultimately have some bearing on their ability to go into particular career paths that might still be affecting them when they're, you know, well into their 20s, 30s, 40s. So uh, not everyone has that. But yeah, luckily, I, I did. I had something that I was driving for from a young age. And you're quite right. That that does give help to give you focus and, and give you purpose for the studies. And but clearly to be a, a pilot full stop, let alone an Air Force pilot, um, you've got to be working pretty hard. You've got to be pretty academically astute. You've got to be getting some good results along the way. Did you have an interest in other parts of school as well or were you focused on academics because I've got to get a particular score to get me into a particular course to get me to a particular next step? So the funny thing is to be to do this job, there's actually less of a focus on academics than, than you might think. I was an academic kid and I've, I've always found the academic side of things easier than a lot of the other things in this job. Um, the Air Force tests for a wide range of things of which the academic stuff is actually quite small and not, um, not, not that big a part. They've got a very kind of specific list of things that they check for through, you know, 12 months of recruiting. Um, and yeah, the academic stuff isn't, isn't that big a part of it, strangely. So, uh, again, maybe as a positive through school, I, I felt comfortable that I'd get the, the grades that I needed to do this. Um, and in a way that took the pressure off. Um, and I still applied myself, um, but not having to achieve a particular mark or not be worried about achieving a particular mark for a particular uni course, for example, um, was another, another positive thing for me where I was lucky. So if we've got um, some people who are tuning in and they know somebody or they are somebody who thinks one day I'd like to uh, be a, a pilot or, or in fact work for the Australian Air Force, what are some of those other aspects of, of you, the person, that are part of the process? Like obviously there's a little bit of academics. There must be some physical. There must be some psychological. There must be some uh, ability to make decisions quickly. What, what are some other things that that they might need to be thinking about. Right. So the, if someone's actually interested, the best way to start that would be jump on the, uh, on the website, literally Google it, um, go to the ADF recruiting or whatever it is website and get the most up-to-date information. Cause I joined the Air Force 19 years ago, straight from school. 
um, a lot has probably and hopefully changed. But broadly speaking, so academic performance is, uh, is one thing, if only to judge um, your ability to learn generically um, and your motivation and your ability to apply yourself to something. So that's part of it. The psychological you mentioned, so you will have psychological testing, uh, aptitude testing, um, spatial reasoning, uh, decision-making. Physical, again, isn't much of a factor. The, that, that can be solved pretty easily with anyone, so that's um, not that big a deal. Um, and they look for some kind of sort of extracurricular things, so sports and um, other things are, are great. Um, leadership, you know, any opportunity to embrace leadership. You don't need to be school captain, but the willingness to, um, to take on leadership is a positive thing. Um, and that's probably it from what I can think of, but I'm sure there's more things that they're looking at behind the scenes. Sure. We're speaking with Chris Camille from the class of 2000. And Chris, you've just mentioned that in order to get where you are, they were looking for really quite a broad scope of who you are and what makes you up. Tell us when you're at school, what were some of those extra things that you enjoyed doing? Like, where would we find you? Did you hang out in the art room? Were you hanging out on the sports field? Were you, hang, you know, hanging out in the queue for the tuck shop? Like, where did you tend to... <laughs> Probably all of those things except art. Art. I wasn't, was never, was never and still am not very um, artistically minded. Uh, I really enjoyed sport. I don't, I don't think anyone who knows me would say I'm a highly gifted sportsman, but um, look, some, a lot of my memories from Yara are related to sport. I played, um, played soccer and cricket, um, and on the weekends, I always enjoyed um, the classes and even just you know playing. I remember often playing soccer at lunchtime or playing basketball at lunch. There, a lot of my memories from Yara. So I think uh, a bunch of the time it would be the sport-related things. Um, definitely not art. I was never really music-y. <laughs> uh, probably just go wherever the, the social forces take you, you know, at those, that age. Yeah, for sure. We, we have something that we call Yarra spirit, which is one of those undefinable and yet almost palpable feelings that you have when you come here. And do, if I offer that term to you, the Yarra spirit, can you speak to that? Do you recall it? Is it a thing? Do you remember it? I think I'd be lying if I said I remember it. One of the biggest realizations I've had about Yarra um, has happened after I left the place. It's um, I went back some years ago. Actually, I um, had the chance to fly a jet over the school and then come in and talk at assembly, which was great. Uh, and so on that day when I came into assembly, I then got a chance to wander the grounds, and it was having that extra perspective on life and not having been there. You realize really how how lucky students of Yarra are to have those facilities and. Um, the sports facilities and the, the halls and the classrooms. It's, um, yeah, and so that's really an example of how, you know, it was only on after leaving the school and getting some broader experience that you realise, um, you know, Yarra's got a lot to offer. So um, I don't think I really appreciated how, um, how good the place was, how lucky uh, I was to go to the school uh, until leaving it. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, no, that's and you're right. Sometimes stepping away from something and then looking back, and in your situation, actually being able to come back in and and you know, <laughs> remarkable to look at it from the air, mind you, relatively quickly as you fly <laughs> over the top. But then also to come and walk the grounds again and remember, you know, that the time when and and I remember that 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 goal I scored from there and so forth is is really a powerful memory to bring back. It, it, that's great. Didn't score many goals, Paul. Don't remember that one, but <laughs> everything else. Yep. 
So what was it like to be around you when you were a kid? You know, what was the you <laughs> experience? What did other people find when they found you? I don't know. I'm not the best person to judge that. I, I wasn't an exceedingly popular kid. You know, I, I found school challenging socially. Um, it was hard work. Got a very good group of friends out of it now who continue to catch up um, regularly. But uh, I, don't, I don't know what it would have been like. That would be an interesting one. You could have a, as an annex to this podcast, you could call up a couple of my friends and say, hey, what was, what was Chris like back in 1998? Uh, I might not listen to that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> Fair enough. But I dare say, like, do you use the notion that you are squadron leader Chris Camille from the Royal Australian Air Force when you go to dinner parties? Like, surely that <laughs> Yeah, I've got all must... my credit cards, all my mail, I put that squadron leader. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, but there's something, something engaging and something um, kind of mystical about the notion of your job is to fly and now to train others to fly fighter, fighter, fighter jets. That's remarkable. <laughs> Look, I, I like it. I find it exciting, but I'm obviously biased. I don't expect anyone else to. Um, my wife keeps me well-grounded and uh, doesn't want to talk about work or anything at all much. So, um, no, I, I, I don't think anyone likes anyone at a, at a dinner party who just talks about themselves and their, and their job, and so I try uh, not to do that too much. Uh, I appreciate that, but if I found you at a dinner party, I would want to ask lots of questions. And I guess, and inspired by Yarra podcast, I get to do just that. So maybe, okay. maybe I love my job too. Yeah, that's look. I I'm really passionate about what I do. That's probably the biggest thing. You know, we spoke about before what um, what the Air Force looks for in people um, entering to do this kind of work, and the passion and the enthusiasm and the commitment is probably. The biggest thing, uh, and I still really love my job and I'm excited about it, but I don't necessarily expect anyone else to, to share that, but I like it when they do. Absolutely. Well, we're fascinated and uh, really intrigued to hear your journey from school days. And, and I guess for me, it's a little bit about the notion that other students who might be listening or, or parents of students who might be listening, and, and, and I know a couple who who have aspirations to serve, and, and that's got to be part of your makeup, is that you want to serve. In your situation, you're seeking to serve your country and serve the people, uh, and, and perhaps even on an international scale, you're seeking to serve, and often it's a peacekeeping uh, form of service in, in, in terms of sustaining the, the lifestyle that we become accustomed to. That's part of your role is to keep us keep us safe. But I know that there are people who are tuned into the notion of perhaps um, taking on something that, you know, in terms of a journey, a pathway toward service. I wonder whether you can uh, give us a little insight because you just talked about passion and commitment. In terms of working for the Australian Air Force, are there routines or rituals or rhythms that are part of your life that you have found or maybe they've been instilled in you or forced upon you to help you be the best that you can be, you know, whether it's a morning routine, whether it's um, we won't suggest that maybe you're doing a 1,000 push-ups a day or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, is, is there something, a, a rhythm and routine or habits that you find help you to, to be your best? So in the, in the fighter world, we've got a, um, a culture of, what would you call it? I guess reflection, debriefing, improvement. Um, it's very tightly ingrained with what we do. Um, I think that's something that uh, it's probably the thing that makes the, the Australian fighter force kind of the professional outfit that it is. And it is, you know, I might be biased from the inside, but it is 
highly professional and highly effective. Um, and I put that down to that that culture where of self reflection, of always looking for ways to improve and striving for um, striving for excellence. Excellence that's been kind of instilled in me over the last you know however long I've been doing this in fighters, maybe thirteen years of being flying fighters, where uh, every day you're looking to improve um, and you spend time focusing on what happened. You know, for us, it's debriefing. It's literally picking apart a mission minute by minute, um, frame by frame for look for looking for ways to improve things. Um, but that stretches outside the cockpit and outside flying as well as that focus on improvement, you know, never thinking that you're all over something, um, always looking for ways to be doing things better. Um, and I found that kind of ingrained in me and woven into my life. And I think that's a, I think that's a positive thing. I think it's a healthy mindset um, to, to have. And I think it, it means that as a, as a person, you can always try and uh, focus on doing things better. There's certainly some um, nuggets of wisdom that you've shared just then, and uh, and I really appreciate that. Many people find those nuggets in the classroom. They're teachers, and I'm a teacher, and so I'm a bit biased. Um, but I think teachers offer so much. I think that they seek to motivate and inspire and they counsel and they educate and they hang in there with students and so forth. And sometimes, every now and then, a teacher comes along who you might almost frame as an inspiration. And I don't want to load you with having to think of a teacher, but I wonder if I can broaden the question around Yarra. This podcast is called Inspired by Yarra. What inspired you at Yarra when you were here as a student? Oh. I, that's a, that's a difficult one, but such a, such a long time ago. I wouldn't, I'd find it hard to think of a particular thing that inspired me at Yarra from all those years ago, but you know, you touched on teachers. Um, and again, at the time at Yarra, you, you don't think a lot about it. You know that your teachers are professional and they're doing their job. But after the fact, again, I now have a, a great appreciation for, um, the work and the, the commitment and the enthusiasm. Um, of the teachers at Yarra. Um, my wife's a teacher too, so I understand uh, what what's involved. Um, and again, only with that sort of benefit of hindsight do you realise that um, you know they're they're invested in it. They're not just necessarily rocking up to do their job and go home and get paid. You know, they take pride in what they do and have personal involvement. Um, I've got a bunch of memories of uh, teachers whose names I've forgotten, but whose actions I remember quite clearly. That's a, a beautiful reflection, actually, that it's not necessarily about the person, it's not even what they did, but it's the influence that they have on us and how they make us feel that spurs us on. And, and as you say, 20 years down the track, there are some of those things that still have you acknowledge, have helped you, have shaped you, have helped you become the, the, the man, the servant, the leader that you are, which is a beautiful thing. I wonder whether you can uh, reflect again on the notion of change between then and now. Is there anything that is important to you now that was not important to you when you were a 14, 15, 17-year-old kid at school? Something that's important now that wasn't then? Yeah, I think there's an enormous number of things, you know, on, on the surface, I'd say right now, I'm, uh, my family, I have a, a wife and uh, two children and a third one on the way um, that I wouldn't have even thought about and nor would you expect someone to um, when they're at school. Congratulations. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you. I, um, I think at school, you're so caught up in that, um, in the moment of what's going on around you and the, the 
social aspect of school, which, like I said, you know, isn't always easy. I think that's some of the socially most difficult uh, time of your life. When everyone's developing, you don't really know where your life's heading. You don't have a heap of independence. Um, you're thrust into an environment with, uh, with your peers that you have no real control over, um, but you're always going to see every day. Um, so, you know, I, I remember that being a main focus of my time at school, um, whereas, you know, now my, my life, you have a lot more choice about what you do. Um, you can steer your own life and, um, uh, yeah, my, my focus is on my, my family, my job and, you know, engaging in, with the people around me and looking for happiness uh, and for, you know, enjoying seeing happiness in others. And at school, I think, to be honest, probably fairly focused internally on um, just the day-to-day, week-to-week of, um, <laughs> of school. Yeah, it's and, like, and just coping with the challenges of that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a surprisingly hard time, I think. Um, I mean, there's no doubt at Yarra, everyone or nearly everyone at Yarra is um, relatively fortunate in the scheme of Australia and the world. Uh, but, you know, it's still, it's still difficult to be a, a kid at school. Absolutely. You you touched on there and I just want to zero in for a moment on family and at the moment you're based um, and you go from home to work every day, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I live in so Newcastle, the yeah. half hour drive up to the Air Force Base. So you, you then commute, you travel home to your family each afternoon, each evening, you spend, you're, you're a dad, you take your uniform off and you're a dad and you do all the good things and the challenging things that being a dad involves and then you put your boots on in the morning and you get back to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Okay, so that, that's the lifestyle at the moment. Um, how old's your oldest child? Four. Okay, okay. Well, let me, let me take you through to a different time in your future. Um, where I'm at now and many of our listeners are at, in some of them have already been through this and journeyed through this, but we're almost approaching the time when I've got to sit in the passenger seat of the car and my L-plater son is going to take control of the wheel. And both my wife and I are, are interested to work out how that's going to work and so forth. But let me take you back to your role at the moment. You sit in the back seat of a fighter jet and yeah. you have a learner sitting in front of you. <laughs> Trying to kill me every day, yeah. <laughs> what are some things that happen and do you have any tips for those of us who are in the passenger seat of a, a, a vehicle? <laughs> what can we learn about uh, taking our learner drivers through the process? You've got one, uh, one great advantage in, in my job compared to being in the passenger seat of a car is that I've got a set of controls uh, where I can, I can take control of the jet if I need to. So that's a luxury that you don't have when your 16-year-old child is jumping behind the wheel for the first time. Um, I think something we do uh, in the training is, uh, I mean, we set through things very slowly. Um, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Um, I don't know whether that's practical or whether your 16-year-old is going to be uh, willing to take an hour of preparation before jumping in the car each time you might you might find yourself very quickly replaced by by an uncle or something but uh, but preparation talking about things uh, before um, uh, are helpful and yeah for, for me being able to grab control before um before a fiery death yes well I, I'm glad you do have that control that is important that's very important I wonder whether um, you might uh, give me the opportunity to, to throw a few fairly quick questions at you and it's going to take you back to Yarra and uh, and stretch your memory maybe just a little bit. But um, can you recall, tell us what house were you in? 
Uh, Maroon, Maroon, you want it? Arnott, Arnott? Is that a, is that a house, Arnott? Or is yes. That, I'm just yes, getting confused with the biscuits. absolutely. No, is, I think that no. one, is that the Maroney colour? We'll, we'll take Arnott. Um, tell me, what might we find in your lunch box? If you opened up your lunch, you're in Ooh. year 10, what's a regular? Uh, Vegemite and cheese sandwich, uh, muesli bar. I think there are always sweet things, which I'm fortunate I, I'm as skinny and weedy as I am, but yeah. I think, yeah, Vegemite sandwiches, muesli bars were common. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. I can't remember any more than that. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was a diet of muesli bars and sandwiches. Who made your lunch? I think my – well, I shouldn't say I think. I better not tell my mum to listen to this. My mum made my lunch. I think maybe towards the older years I probably had more influence, but, um, yeah, it was definitely mum. If given the choice between swimming sports and athletic sports, what would you prefer? <laughs> I don't look good in swimmers. I'm built like a like a beanpole. <laughs> so purely purely on the optics of it, then uh, athletics. Not that I was particularly good at either. No, I think uh, athletics generally. Fair enough. I wonder, do you recall, and by the sounds of it, you're probably more likely to be in the audience rather than on the stage, but was there a musical, a performance, a drama that springs to mind, something that you thought that, that, that I guess, sticks out in your memory? Oh, um, that was a Wizard of Oz, I think, back in the day. Uh, that's pushing it. It's probably circa 1995 or something. We should look that up, but no, that's... That's about it. Yeah, like I mentioned, I was never a particularly um, artistic kind of person. But I remember sure. one. Or I've just rolled the dice with a common high school uh, <laughs> musical type thing and we'll, we'll see someone can fact check that. Yes. One way or another, you're probably right. <laughs> uh, tell us uh, on leaving school, what was your first car? Uh, a 1985 um, Honda Integra. Pop-up headlights, red. Very fast for a 17-year-old boy. <laughs> it wasn't particularly, but uh, but I still liked it and it was functional. Although and I couldn't certain- drive. I, I finished school when I was 17. So for uh, six months, I was in the uh, in the Air Force, going to uni with the Air Force and um, scabbing lifts off my mates, which was actually not a bad thing. Yes, in hindsight, you know, at, at one point you want that control, but actually yeah. when you're the one who's got to put fuel in the car and all of that sort of thing, <laughs> getting right, lift yeah. is, is pr- quite helpful sometimes. Yeah, yep. Tell us about a, a book or a documentary that you um, have been motivated by or inspired by. It could be a movie as well. I'm going to claim Top Gun, so you can't use that. <laughs> Can I go Top Gun 2 yet to be released? <laughs> um, oh, inspired by. Um, I am currently reading something uh, by Steven Pinker. Um, and what's it called? Uh, should at least know the title. I've told you I'm reading it, but uh, you'll have to trust me. I'm reading the words on the inside, but maybe not the cover. <laughs> but I, I'm really enjoying that. And and a previous work of his called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, they, I think they're inspirational from a broad perspective because they focus on how the, the world, the earth that we're living in, um, is so much better in almost every objective, measurable way for people, for humans, than it ever has been before. Um, you know, you turn on TV, it's easy to get the opposite idea, but um, Stephen Pinker lays out the facts that I think all, no one could argue with if you read uh, either of these books, that in, in almost any objective and reasonable, measurable way, um, life is a lot better than it used to be. So it paints a very positive picture um, for humanity, which is, um, which is great. Uh, obviously not stop trying. 
but um, but it's a wonderful time to be living, and all indications are that on the whole, at a broad level, that should keep improving, um, and and that makes me happy and optimistic for my children. And I'm waiting for the and yet because I think the and yet to that positive situation, which I agree with as well, and yet the level of happiness or maybe the level of um, mental challenge, depression, the divorce rates are continuing to get higher and higher. Dare I say suicide is something that is, you know, very prevalent in our community and yet things, we've got it so good and yet it appears that we're not, still not satisfied. Does he give us any insight into the reasons why or what we can do to keep making things better? I'd be, I'd be a brave man to um, try and forecast or, or explain the reasons why, but there, there's no doubt that even on a big, even at the bigger level, a lot of the trends are positive. That doesn't mean it's necessarily any easier or easier at an individual level with you know the daily challenges that uh, everyone has um, to deal with them. Um, and all the the difficulty that come with probably every human life. I'm sure those haven't changed a lot for uh, as long as people have been around. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the background things about health and life expectancy and access to resources and education can improve, but people still have to deal with a lot of the hardships. Um, and you know that that's never going to go away. So clearly, there's a lot of work to still uh, still be done. But you know, I'm I'm encouraged by the overall trends. Um, which is good. Yeah, like I say, I don't, I wouldn't offer any any advice or any way of dealing with it. That's a question that's bigger than me. Fair enough, fair enough. And uh, and and yet you're right. And I, I also am one to look at the the positives and uh, appreciate that there's never been a better time to live. We and that's what we've got to do, don't we? We've got to live in the moment. We've got to be here and now. And at the same time, reflect back, and and that's what we've had the opportunity to do here. We've gone back and we've traced some of the steps that have led to today, to this moment, and to you in your career and me in mine and, and this conversation. I want to throw something out at you that you may recall, and that is our school motto, Lavavi Oculus. Does that ring any bells? Do you know what it means? I can help you if you like. Lift up our eyes. That- Lift up our eyes. If I offer that term to you, our school motto, lavavi oculus, to lift up your eyes, what does that phrase mean to you either? What did it mean to you when you were a young lad or what does it mean to you today? I can. Uh, I think it's triggering triggering the school song. Is that uh, that's something I haven't thought about in 19 and a half years. But, You're very um, welcome to give us a few bars. A like. <laughs> rendition. You've, you've got the microphone, but I'll start. You lead. I'll, I'll join. No, let's not. Let's not do that to anyone. Um, I, uh, I think, I think looking, looking upwards and forwards is, a, you know, taking a positive view on, uh, and things. And, you know, I could link it back to what I was talking about before, which is improvement and development. You know, if you're looking upwards and forwards, you're, you're looking to improve yourself and other people and, you know, try and make things more positive, always improving. Absolutely. And, and I, I like that. And, and that aspirational nature of that phrase and that term and quite clearly the way that you've built your life is on that looking forward and and seeking to um, better yourself and better those around you and and I think that that's uh, that's quite admirable. 
If I offer the term success, what does success look like to you? It's a very individual, very individual thing, you know, and it's changed for me over time. Um, if you asked me leaving school, I would have said getting my, getting my wings, becoming a qualified pilot. Um, you know, if you asked me approaching that point where I was going to get qualified, it would be becoming a qualified fighter pilot. If you asked me, you know, as I was about to become a qualified fighter pilot, it would be, you know, reaching a certain level of performance flying or going on operations. Um, but for now, for me, having, um, having done a lot of the things that I set out to do, I'm much more focused on my, on my family. Now I've been, been lucky enough to be able to follow my dream and, and do a lot of the things I set out to do. So now I'm, I'm fortunate where I can change course and feel satisfied with a lot of things I've done. Um, and, you know, my main goal now is to have a happy home front and have um, three happy, healthy children who develop well and um, set them up for an enjoyable life satisfying life. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, it sounds like you've got the commitment and the dedication that your career has led you through and has grown in you to to continue to play that out in, in on the home front as well. And that's uh, certainly a worthy target and a worthy goal for sure. I imagine, although in your career, more than many of us, failure has the potential to be disastrous. Have you had some trips and stumbles and falls along the way? Have, have you, I don't know, have you had to push the ejector button? Haven't had to eject, fortunately. That's very, very bad. It's very much a last resort kind of thing where you're breaking bones but you're surviving. Um, it's pretty rare, luckily. Um, as for failure, then, then yeah, a, a lot. And that's, that's a reality of, well, life in general, but certainly um, becoming and being a fighter pilot is a bunch of, a bunch of failure. The, the, just through training, um, you know, there's a, a large attrition rate. It's challenging to get in, in the door in the first place. Um, then you invest years of your life and focusing on something and, you know, maybe only 50% of people become, get their wings, become a pilot. Of those, maybe 20% go to jets and of that 20%, then 50% uh, drop out along the way as well. So you're, every day you're flying and during that training over years, you're being assessed in detail every single day um, and have people focusing on all the things that you do wrong. Um, so, uh, you know, and sometimes it's just negative points uh, and sometimes you, it's actual failure where the person says to you, hey, that you failed that ride because every, every flight is a test and you have to um, go back and learn, learn more, do it again and, and try and get through knowing that, you know, two fails and your, your career is over essentially. So for years, you're never more than a week away from, um, you know, doing something else, driving a bus. So that, um, that is challenging, but it also means that you get um, comfortable with, with failure and it, you know, focuses that it puts your attention onto improving and, and developing. Um, you're never that far away from, <laughs> from failure. And, you know, everyone has adversity in different, different ways in their lives and no one is ever, things are going to go to plan. So learning to have a bit of perspective on, uh, on failure, I think is really important. Um, and taking a positive attitude towards it. So taking the lessons and the positives away from it, resolving to, uh, to try and improve and do things, uh, things better and then throwing yourself um, back into it again. I think they're um, you know, important lessons and you know, something that was prevalent during training. And uh, obviously even once finished training, there's uh, you know, failure flying a, flying a jet around with other jets in close proximity and close to the ground can have serious consequences. So it's something that you get fairly, fairly comfortable in living a life close to, <laughs> to significant failure.
It's it's remarkable. We're we're speaking with Chris Camille from the class of two thousand, um, squadron leader of the Royal Australian Air Force. Chris, based on some of the the reflections and the stories that you've shared with us, it seems to me that you have put yourself into high pressure situations, pressure that most of us would never actually understand. What does it take to cope with pressure? How do you how do you manage the stress of all that information coming at you? Um, you know, both visually and and the jet itself is giving you all this information. You're you're also being assessed, and you know, one wrong move, and that might be your career, but it might be your life, and you know, that's a high pressure situation. So, tell me a little bit about stress. Yeah, I think I mean everyone has stress in different different ways and types. So I don't know whether I've got more than more than average person, uh, but certainly like professionally, that it is a stressful job. Um, partly from the physical thing of of flying and that focus on flying, but also the the social stress that is tied to your performance at work, which again is common across a lot of um, a lot of jobs. I don't know if I have any grand tactics for dealing with it. As far as dealing with the um, the volume of information and things coming at you when you're flying a jet, um, I find consciously choosing where to focus your attention um, at any given second is a key thing. You know, and that I think applies across life when when there's a lot of input and stimulus and a lot is happening in your life. If you deliberately decide to, where to look at that moment in time and what what you want to be doing, um, that can help give you something to focus on. Um, and it means you're, you have a plan for dealing with things like you're consciously deciding things and in control rather than um, being reactionary to whatever is happening at you. So I don't have any, um, any gold dust for you, Paul, but I don't know. We're fortunate in, during the training, we take fairly slow steps. Um, every, you know, we learn bit by bit. So something that, uh, if I were to throw you in a jet and go and do now might be eye watering, um, you know, is, is built up to over a, over a series of flights and well prepared, well rehearsed. So. Um, you're well prepared by the time uh, that happens. I think I'd have struggle just getting up the ladder, to be honest. <laughs> but um, look, Chris, you've you've been wonderfully generous with your time, and and I really appreciate your uh, generosity of storytelling and of reflection, and the your ability to put words together has been uh, terrific. And and maybe that's also a reflection on your ability to process information and then pick the piece of information that you then want to share and you've articulated it beautifully. So for that, we are very, very grateful. Um, I have only one question left and I want you to answer the question and then answer the question. And my question is, what is the one question that you really wished I had asked you? Oh. <laughs> Can you ask it and then answer it? Oh, I'm going to need some time, some thinking music. Um, yes. We can play some thinking music in the background. Can you sing a little song or something for me? Uh, all right, how about this? How, uh, how about what, what bit of advice would you give to, um, to young people or to yourself 20 years ago? How about that? Good question. What do you got for us? Okay. <laughs> oh, good one, Paul. Uh, let me answer that for you. No, I think um, I touched on it earlier. I think don't take yourself too seriously. Um, one big one would be don't compare yourself to anyone else. You don't know what their life and their journey is about. It's easy to um, easy to look for comparisons uh, and use other people as a yardstick, but I think that's really dangerous and unhealthy because on the surface you don't really know what's going on with other people, um, and it really doesn't matter. 
Uh, I think you should focus on your own life uh, and try to avoid making comparisons with other people because uh, invariably that can just lead to um, negative comparisons which aren't healthy. Keep a sense of humour. Chris Camille from the class of 2000, thank you for your time. Thanks for your generosity. Thanks for the inspiration and for your storytelling and reflection along the way. We are grateful to you and clearly there is some inspiration inside of you that is from Yarra and now you continue to be an inspiration back to Yarra. So for that, we thank you and we salute you. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. It's been, uh, it's been fun. And that all but wraps up another episode of Inspired by Yarra and I hope you enjoyed the rolls and the twists and the turns and the hard corners that we veered around and the g-forces that we gained in talking with chris camille from the class of 2000 what a well thought through interview in terms of his responses his thoughtfulness his reflection there's wisdom there on those relatively young shoulders and i guess that's the way we'd want it to have somebody who is measured and thoughtful in control of something so powerful and now wonderful to hear that while by day he teaches other fighter pilots he looks forward at the end of his working day to head home and be with his family inspired by yara is a podcast where we're seeking to unpack the stories and the adventures that yara all grammarians have lived and are continuing to live as they seek to be an inspiration to others. We'd encourage you to stay connected to the YOG community and to our wider Yarra Valley Grammar community. And probably the best way to do that is via the www.yvg.vic.edu.au website. And we have a section up there along the top. If you drop down on the community section, you'll find all of the bits and pieces that are going on and that are planned for the future. My name's Paul Joy and so on behalf of everybody at Yarra and also those who are involved in putting these episodes together, I want to wish you another day of inspiration where you go out with a certain level of intentionality in a bid to make an impact, a positive change in the world around you. you.